For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm joined by Spike's Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. This week we'll be discussing Steve Bannon's disinvitation from the New Yorker Festival, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and the new Nike advert inflaming the culture wars. Bannon responded to being disinvited calling Remnick gutless. Bannon is arguably the guy who turned around the sinking SS Trump. How could a guy so hateful and paranoid help accomplish such a trick? Why don't you ask him? The New Yorker was about to, but they've backed out like a U-Haul down a one-way alley. Let them call you racist. Let them call you xenophobes. Let them call you nativist. Wear it as a badge of honor. Donald Trump's former strategist, Steve Bannon, was invited to speak at the New Yorker Festival. David Remnick, who edits The New Yorker, had promised a rigorous and combative interview, but following a sharp backlash from New Yorker readers and with a number of planned guests like Jim Carrey threatening to pull out, Bannon's invitation was rescinded. Tom, is this move to ban Bannon not a bit of an own goal for the so-called resistance? Oh, it's 100% an own goal. I mean, Bannon's whole line is the fact that the mainstream media, particularly the liberal media, are snowflakes, they're intolerant, they can't stand the other side, they're vehemently anti-Trump and anyone who associates with him. And they proved him right in this situation. As soon as you had the kind of big name speakers threatened to pull out, David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, who was going to do the interview, um, completely turned tail and um, removed the invitation. And the idea that by giving him this platform at The New Yorker Festival, they were going to legitimise him and his point of view, I think is completely the wrong way to see it. If anything, by pulling out, they're just proving the point that Bannon is making and increasingly it looks like the right point to make, which is the so-called resistance, the liberal intelligentsia in the US... Um, are incapable of really reckoning with what the Trump phenomenon is and just want to kind of hold it at arm's length and just shriek against it. So if anyone's come out on top in this situation, I think it's Bannon who gets to claim the PR victory. I think it's just utterly cowardly as well. The opportunity to have Steve Bannon on a panel, I mean, rightly or wrongly, this guy is of public interest. He was in high office in the White House. A lot of people listen to what he has to say. Not every one of them agrees with him, but certainly I'd kill for the opportunity to get an interview with him. Because it would be so easy to combat his views. I mean, anyone who uh, listened to that little clip of him going mad after I think it was an LBC interview with Nigel Farage shows how completely incapable of of, uh, you know, being challenged he is. He lost it because he, he was given a question that he wasn't prepared for and he completely lost it. I mean, he was so cross by the fact that he was caught off guard. It would be delicious to catch him and to get him and on a public platform to really put his views to the test. I think any journalist who has passed up that opportunity can't call themselves journalists. One thing that many people have said who have, you know, supported the New Yorker in disinviting Bannon is that his views are beyond the pale, that he's a fascist even. But I mean, how seriously can we take those kinds of claims? Not very seriously at all, I think. I I also would question um, their understanding of fascism. I mean, I think the whole kind of throwing around of the phrase fascist, the label fascist, 
does a disservice to the seriousness of what fascism was in history. But Bannon himself has flirted with all kinds of different politics. He's, uh, I think he's compared himself to Lenin at one point as well. Lenin and Mussolini are two of his <laughs> <Yeah>. heroes. <laughs> so, Interesting guy, to say the yeah. least. And the very, very, very controversial thing in terms of it was reported as very controversial that he said was people should wear racist as a badge of honour. And what he was actually saying there wasn't that you should go out and be proud to hate black people. Mm. What he was saying is you should wear this um, this insult, this slogan as a badge of honour. That was a different point. No, completely. And I think that really touches on the ridiculousness of this whole situation. Because if anything, I think the backlash to the um, his appearance at the New Yorker Festival proves why that invitation was probably quite a good idea. Insofar as the resistance, such as it's called, you know, the US liberal intelligentsia, however you want to define it, um, the primary problem with the resistance, they don't actually know what it is that they're resisting. They don't really know what the Trump phenomenon was all about. Um, they don't really even know what Steve Bannon seems to think as they're throwing, you know, fascist white supremacists at him, despite the fact that as much as I try, I can't find him saying anything explicitly fascist or white supremacist. It just goes to the fact that they are refusing to actually try to understand what happened, which is a sizable amount of people in America um, have grown incredibly distant and disdainful of those kind of coastal elites and relish the opportunity to give them a bloody nose and i think the more and more they try and um the, the more and more they throw the word fascist around the more and more it's quite clear that they haven't learned lessons of 2016 and the other thing that's interesting about steve bannon is in many respects he's a, he's a strange but interesting bloke he has this he has this kind of politics this economic nationalism that he's very into he sees everything in kind of strange world historical terms and this idea that the um the us and the west are going into this clash with china and, and the islamic world and all this kind of stuff very strange worldview which is kind of interesting but the the other thing is that the more and more he gets puffed up as being this kind of Goebbels figure, this kind of strange fascistic neo-Nazi plotter, the evil mind behind the Trump bluster, actually, I think, bigs him up more than he actually needs to be. From the off throughout his entire political career, he's kind of ridden on the coattails of Tea Party types and then Trump. He's really been someone who's been in the right place at the right time. And I actually think on many levels, he's profiting off of this idea that he's the grand mastermind, when in many cases he's not. And I think if he did get that platform at that New Yorker festival, that's maybe one thing that some people in the audience would have got to understand if, again, their kind of knee-jerk intolerance didn't kick in beforehand. Of course, yeah, people keep forgetting that he was sacked by Trump. He no longer is, you know, involved in the White House and Trump even famously calls him Sloppy Steve. Sloppy Steve. <laughs> and also his track record since then because when he left the White House um, he again was saying that I'm basically I'm going to play air interference for Trump, I'm going to take the fight to the establishment Republicans, I'm going to back all of these populist right-wing characters in primaries and one of the first people he threw his lot in with was Roy Moore, <laughs> this Republican candidate in Alabama who was lit like a theocratic loon and an alleged paedophile who was so off putting that Alabama ended up returning its first Democratic sen senator for 25 years. So the idea, that, again, that he's some sort of mastermind, incredibly in touch um, with ordinary voters, Republican voters, I think is a little bit stretched, to say the least. I think that also just plays into how, you know, scared people are of the average voter that they think that it is Bannon's message in particular that has, you know, galvanized the Trump base, for instance. It's a very kind of strange leap to go from listening to a Steve Bannon speech to believing that that's what half the US believes. I mean, the idea also that um, the paying customers who are coming along to the New Yorker Festival are going to be, you know, suspect <laughs> of going along with Steve Bannon is, I think, perhaps a misreading of that customer base. But for wider society as well, it 
does not hold that America is a nation of fascists and racists. And, you know, despite the fact that people seem to think that's what's happened in the election of Trump, that isn't the case. So even if uh, Steve Bannon's, you know, his his Muslim ban, any of his more controversial politics uh, were heard, there is no reason why it wouldn't be incredibly easy to defeat them because... Uh, this is a controversial thing to say these days, but on the whole, society is fairly good and fairly decent and believes in equality, um, certainly in the West. So I think the kind of mistrust of an audience to be able to handle this is something quite telling. I mean, it's it's people have said this isn't a free speech matter. This is a free speech matter. It's It's almost like a textbook example of the fact that you don't think that certain views should be allowed to be aired mm. I, th- I think the only thing i'll probably tack onto that i think it's a free speech matter insofar as it's quite clear that a lot of people are kind of losing the broader like ethic of free speech which is as you say ella it's not going to be the case that there were going to be people in that audience who would potentially be um, sympathetic to that message or going to be suddenly won over by it that's ridiculous but the thing about free speech and a free society is that it should also encourage people to seek out people who they disagree with who are of notes who are of influence and to try and understand what they think so as to challenge it or just to better understand it and i think the whole new yorker controversy just proves that there are many people in america who are still so flying off the handle from the trump thing that they're just refusing to do that it seems You're listening to the Spike Podcast. Please be sure to give us a rating and a review. It really helps us to reach new people. Up next, anti-Semitism. After two years of rows over anti-Semitism, this week the Labour Party's ruling executive agreed to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, along with all its examples in full. The announcement was accompanied by a statement committing the party to protect free speech, and in particular the right to criticise Israel. But what do we make of Labour's sudden interest in free speech? Not much. <laughs> not much. Not least because it is mired in this very ugly row about anti-Semitism. Um, uh, I'm not Jewish, but I think most Jewish people um, in the UK would find it very hard to believe at this point that Labour didn't have a problem, mm. a very deep problem mm. with anti-Semitism. Uh, it doesn't matter that Jeremy Corbyn has apologised for all his mishaps on platforms with people or his uh, misspoken phrases or whatever it is. This has been the kind of, it's been the silly season this summer. It's also been the summer of apology for Jeremy Corbyn. The fact is there's something wrong. Um, And to use freedom of speech um, to criticise Israel for Palestinians in order to mask their problems of anti-Semitism, I think, is a real abuse. Mm. And and it gets in many ways to the heart of Labour's problem with anti-Semitism, which is the fact they have this glaring blind spot and double standard. So the thing about the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, is that it effectively upholds the kind of what we might in Britain call the kind of Macpherson definition of anti of, of racism, in this case anti-Semitism. So the idea that while certain words uh, might not or certain statements might not be explicitly racist or explicitly anti-Semitic, that in a certain context, um, the you know, the racism is in the eye of the beholder on some level. That is a line that the Labour Party accepts in almost all other instances and yet here they have a problem with it here they see free speech concerns and similarly just witness the the pile on not just against boris johnson this summer but you know against some leading labor figures against jamie oliver over a, over a product that we talked about last week so in get in, they have this hair trigger amongst all other forms of racism and yet with anti-semitism it's different similarly they will um, be up for censoring offensive speech in almost all other instances except when it comes to having a pop at israel and jews 
that's the message that is sent by this. And I think that's why we really can't take this idea that they've suddenly become late converts to the right to offend very seriously at all. Well, I think even, even this week, you know, Labour are supporting a change to the law that would make misogyny a hate crime. And yet at the same time are saying we believe in free speech for this one specific issue. Mm. I mean, what do you make of that? As Tom says, any kind of controversial hotspot in whatever kind of, whether it's in relation to race or gender, that or any of their kind of proposals on, on protecting um, discussion about transgender rights is another one that where they're very, very bad on free speech. But so I've had a problem with this for a while because I am very critical of the Israeli state. Um, I have been throughout most of my political career. However, and one thing that some of our columnists at Spike have been really good at drawing out that has uh, clarified it for me, this idea of, well, why can't we criticise Israel? We should be able to criticise Israel, is the fact that everything comes down to what's happening in Israel. And I think that's a fact that you can't ignore. I think that's what a lot of Jewish people will be thinking. Why is it that uh, our state, Israel, is the one that gets demonised? I think that's a fairly good point again it's the double standards on the left which has allowed this problem to fester for so long i mean when tim black interviewed howard jacobson the great um comic author for spikes a little while ago he made this point was i keep hearing this idea that you're critical of israel you're critical of israel he said i've got no problem with being of people being critical of israel you're being hysterical about israel and i think that gets to grits with a lot of the problem that we're now seeing bearing out i mean it was very interesting to see for instance so many people making the argument that this IHRA definition of bridges free speech, which I tend to agree with, actually, I think everyone in this room would, um, are the same people who back, say, the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, which to my mind is not only one of the most illiberal campaigns about these days, but also one of the most explicitly discriminatory. It's a campaign which is effectively practising group ethnic punishment off the basis of what the Israeli state does. It's not just saying that representatives of the Israeli state shouldn't be able to come here. It's not about products. It's about saying that any musician, academic, any anyone from that country should be boycotted and not dealt with. And anyone from over here, as we saw this week with Lana Del Rey coming under pressure and eventually caving to not playing in Israel, anyone who even engages with these people, those people, shouldn't be dealt with. And I think, again, it's that glaring double standard which makes um, a lot of people deeply uncomfortable and why I think Labour can't just brush this under the carpet because increasingly what they're presenting as criticism of the Israeli state which of course should be allowed um, is increasingly feeling like criticism and pressure and double standards where Israelis and frankly Jews are concerned and that's what I think most people are worried about. Some people may have seen that there have been these posters put up um, in London across lots of bus bus stops saying you know Israel is a racist endeavour And one of the kind of rows around the IHRA definition is whether you have the right to say Israel is a racist endeavour. And, you know, under normal circumstances, people in the Corbynite left would say, well, why would you want to say X quirky thing? Why do you need the right to say that specifically? But for something like that, which clearly, you know, does cause people a lot of offence, there is, there is, again, this exception made. I mean, that's a great example of how this whole row over anti-Semitism is putting free speech in danger because while some might be very offended by those posters, they should be allowed to go Absolutely. up. Absolutely, yeah. And it's been very interesting, uh, though I have sympathy with the uh, with Jewish people who are coming out and criticising Labour. I don't have sympathy with the kind of very censorious calls to take these down. And it, it is a political opinion. And I think just just to tack on a little bit to that, I, I, I 
think that there's been a lot of heat in this discussion recently. I mean, you had Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi, come out and compare um, Jeremy Corbyn to Enoch Powell off the back of something in which he said at a meeting in 2013, I think, that um, certain Zionists didn't get irony in response to a, a speech that someone from Palestine had given. And that's ridiculous. You know, you can't go around comparing an explicit kind of racialist politician to Jeremy Corbyn. That's ridiculous. But I think what's happened over the past couple of months particularly, I think, um, say around the question of the mural that happened a little while ago. So in 2012, Jeremy Corbyn comments on a picture of a mural um, positively, frankly, and stands up for the guy who painted it and who's complaining about the fact it's going to get rubbed over. That mural depicted, frankly, hook-nosed Jews Mm. playing on a Monopoly board off the back of dark-skinned people. This is a vile anti-Semitic trope. And for a very long time, I think we've... A lot of people who, particularly those who believe in free speech, have kind of given Jeremy Corbyn a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Is that we don't want to go down the road of guilt by association, that he might just not have seen it properly, he might just be a bit dim, who knows what. But I think increasingly and increasingly as these stories start to pile up, I think the question has been raised, and for the first time I'm really thinking it needs to be taken very, very seriously indeed, is that whether or not, not only does Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him have a blind spot or anti-Semitism concerned, but maybe, just maybe, they hold some of their prejudices themselves and that's not an easy thing for anyone to say and I don't think we should throw those labels around lightly but the way in which these stories have piled up um, I think quite clearly the left problem of anti-semitism which is not as some people trying to claim anti-semitism is just everywhere there's a specific problem there um, is real and I think if anything in the the way in which this has become a bit of a political football and the way in which there's been a lot of hyperbole on both sides hasn't helped the fact and probably gotten us away from the point that there is something genuine there which needs to be taken up. Spike content will always be free, with no paywall and no subscriptions. It's contributions from readers and listeners like you which allow us to keep producing our fearless, forthright journalism. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. A new advertising campaign by the sportswear giant Nike has become the latest flashpoint in the culture wars. The advert features former American football player Colin Kaepernick, who famously took the knee when the national anthem was played before football games. The advert has sparked outrage among conservatives, with many even posting pictures of them burning and defacing their Nike products. Even President Trump has waded in to attack Nike for the campaign. But surely this kind of outrage was intended. They knew what kind of reaction they would get. I think they probably did know what reaction they would get. Um, it's hard to tell whether or not this is actually going to cost them in the long run. I mean, apart from some kind of diehard Trumpers, you know, setting their shoes on fire, tearing up their socks <laughs> <laughs> on the internet, showing themselves on some level to be as snowflakey as some of the people they tend to rail against. Um, it's not quite clear whether that will hurt the bottom line. I mean, the thing is, Colin Kaepernick has become this kind of woke figurehead. You know, he's the guy of Generation Woke. So as you say, a couple of years ago, he started taking the knee during the national anthem, uh, there's some dispute as to he, uh, the team he was on, the San Francisco 69ers, he kind of effectively gets kind of cut from the team, excommunicate from the NFL. Some people claim it's because he wasn't playing very well. The other side claim that it's a kind of political campaign. Um, but what's interesting is that this became this whole touchstone. So on the one side, people deriding him as being incredibly unpatriotic. And the other side that's saying this, is, this was this great stand for social justice and for Black Lives Matter. He was doing it to draw attention to police shootings, etc. The funny thing about Kaepernick is he's never really said very much. 
again, I'm not. It's quite clear what his intentions were with that protest, but he's not a political figure in any meaningful sense, I don't think. And yet, he's been leapt upon and he's defended to the hilt by liberal and progressive journalists. And now he's again. I think what's interesting about the Nike thing is that so much of kind of social justice politics, so called, so much of kind of woke politics is so paper thin. Mm. It's a pose. It's a kind of fashion. And I think that's why it can be so easily co-opted and bought by these huge corporate giants is because there's no danger in doing it. There's no real, there's nothing that really challenges anything because at the end of the day, it's less protest and it's more about assuming a certain stance. Um, And no matter what people could say, because I know the the theme of the campaign is sacrifice everything for what you believe in. But at the end of the day, given the huge amount of money he's been handed for this and the fact that um, from the world's perspective, an obscure NFL star has suddenly been turned into an international hero, I think really gets to the grips that this new woke politics is in many respects far less dangerous to the status quo than some of the people promoting it like to think. The thing it reminded me of was the advert a couple of years ago with uh, Kendall Jenner for Pepsi where she appears oh, at this protest, <laughs> opens a can of Pepsi, hands it to a, a police officer in, in all his ridiculous um, kind of armoured gear, and he smiles and, and takes the takes the Pepsi. That advert received a real backlash because people said it was, you know, traducing Black Lives Matter, effectively, kind of blaspheming against um, this really important movement. But as as you say, Tom, you know, there is something so paper thin about this politics that it can be lent and given a kind of corporate makeover and you know there's no kind of distinction now between genuinely you know radical politics and something that could be so easily co-opted for for branding Mm. yeah no if your politics can be used to sell trainers then they're not dangerous politics i mean if they can be used by capitalists then it's not challenging the status quo i think that's a fairly obvious point i mean this is a battle between Trump, uh, on the one hand, who has been incredibly crass about this and in his you know, usual fashion, his tweets are incredibly insulting. And on the other side, you've got Kaepernick and, as Tom says, kind of his the army behind him of American liberals, of whom I don't want to back either. And the kind of interesting thing that I was thinking about in relation to this is we don't have it here in the UK. I don't get that kind of patriotism. But I respect it and I understand to a certain degree, why people get behind it. And I think part of the protest against the flag and part of the protest against the national anthem is that kind of disdain for the kind of Americans who are behind that, is that kind of disdain for Trump voters. So this isn't just about Black Lives Matter. This isn't just about Trump. This isn't just a political protest. It's actually a kind of rubbishing of a type of America that it's become incredibly unfashionable now you know it, it's it's like bigoted to be waving the flag and you kind of have to step back and think hang on what's going on there I think that's a huge part of it you can just tell who these people are kind of thinking of when they're writing these pieces against these idiots who are so obsessed with their flag and their country you know with their kind of trucks with their Trump decals on it and make America great again banners in the back and all the rest of it it's quite clear that that's who this is aimed at but at the same time I also think there's probably a large group in the middle who frankly are quite irritated by what a lot of people call the politicization of everything in America. And so things like sport have always, you know, especially kind of, you know, national sports have been a point at which people can kind of leave everything else at the door a little bit, not just your worries, but your politics. It's something in which you can rally around, have a good time, enjoy. Um, and the thing about the Trump era is that it has sucked politics into almost every aspect of life. 
celebrities feel the need to denounce him at every single opportunity. Comedians feel the need to denounce him at every single opportunity. Sports stars need to. And whilst I think that's definitely been ginned up by both sides, and I think Trump has very self-consciously tried to ride this. I mean, he brought this up um, last year at this um, event for who was then a kind of... Um, Republican candidate. It was completely unrelated, but he just knew that it would get into the news and it would pump people up. So it has been exploited by both sides. There is a bit of snowflakery on both sides, to use that horrible term. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of people in the middle who frankly are just irritated by the fact that the Trump era is just that so hair trigger and so intense that you can't even watch Sunday night football without having to be remembered about all those cultural war battles, it feels like. And just let us not forget that when Trump was elected, speaking of uh, sports products i remember new balance not oh, yeah. uh, coming out and denouncing him and all the american liberals were burning their new balance trainers so <laughs> let's just hang on when we're laughing at the trump voters who are now setting their feet alight because there's an incredible amount of hypocrisy in this discussion <laughs> i forgot there's a nazi trainers aren't they yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Spike Podcasts. We'll be back next week with more. In the meantime, you can visit spiked-online.com for your daily dose of Spike content. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.